Hey, this is Miles Fisher. You're listening to Coffee with the Greats, a podcast that asks living legends about their life's journey and what they learned along the way. Except today, we're speaking with a man who's sadly no longer with us. Herb Kelleher was the founder and CEO of Southwest Airlines. He was a real cowboy, he's a great entrepreneur, and this interview is among the last he ever gave before passing away uh, early in 2019. Publishing it now for the first time feels poignant for a few reasons. First, this conversation is the first interview I ever did with my father. It was our pilot episode. Actually, if I'm being honest, uh, before this podcast ever existed, there were three interviews that I coordinated to see it, you know, if this idea was even worth pursuing. I basically leaned on my dad to schedule a meeting with three of his, basically his professional heroes and mentors. Um, the first was with Paul Volcker, the legendary chairman of the Federal Reserve. And as fate would have it, we also recorded one of his last living interviews. Uh, the second was with Ray Hunt, who is perhaps the most powerful and quote unquote successful of any guest we've ever had on this program, but <laughs> he's also the most private. So we arrived at his office for a three hour interview and he looked at the microphones with complete confusion and insisted we couldn't record anything. So, <laughs> so much for that, which is too bad because for someone so imminently respected, he was also the most humble um, and egoless uh, interview we've ever had. And then there was Herb Kelleher, a man who was just larger than life and just full of life. And this is the first, first one we ever did. And I just remember how cool it was walking into this man's office, overlooking his, his fleet of planes and hearing him just tell his life story, just let it unfold. It was really neat. And, and up to that moment, I had never created anything with my father. I had no idea if this was going to work. I mean, my dad's a great conversationalist. But he's not a journalist, <laughs> and neither am I. I. But I had been a professional actor long enough to know that the secret is just to be present in real time, just to, to really listen and be fluid in conversation, just like we are every day in our private lives. And I loved podcasts, especially ones like How I Built This or you know Tim Ferriss's show. That, that paint a more nuanced portrait of one's journey. But I don't know what kind of questions I was going to ask. I mean, I had no clue. And I, I also was pretty sure that my dad was just going to wing it, <laughs> which he did. And the funny thing is, it's only listening to this now that I realize the questions I tend to ask in this series, which all began in this episode, are informed by everything I learned as an actor preparing to play a role. That is, these are the kinds of questions that I have to answer in my own preparation um, for a character that I'm going to play, which really means that it all leans towards, you know, very personal, vulnerable stuff. So less, who was your favorite teacher in high school? And more, who did you think you needed to be to feel loved? You know, that that that's what I always find most revealing, but... Pretty ambitious to ask that to immensely successful 
humans. Um, but if you've been listening to this podcast from the start, you'll know that somehow the format worked because being there in the room with a father and son is personal to begin with. So the tone, the humor, the storytelling, it, it just it clicked. And now we're 10 episodes in and there's a lot more to come. Um, but going forward, I, I will say I'm going to be reaching out to, to younger men and women who are in the middle of their professional journey. Um, so stay tuned for that. And please do subscribe if you haven't already. You know, maybe text an episode to a friend. There's good wisdom in each of these episodes, and we could all feel a little less lonely right now. But for now, brew up a cup of that delicious Bixby coffee and enjoy this episode of Coffee with the Greats with the late, great Herb Kelleher. Well, I was born in Haddon Heights, New Jersey uh, on March 12th, 1931. And my father was a superintendent of the Camel Soup Company plant in Camden, New Jersey, which was the only plant that they had at that time. And my father and mother met when she was also working at Camel Soup as a secretary. So uh, that's where I was uh, born. And I guess you might say raised, although my mother might dispute that. (laughs) (laughs) Where, Where would she say you were raised? (laughs) <laughs> she would say I wasn't raised you at never, all. You never made <laughs> <Yeah>. any progress. <laughs> so I, given that you come from soup, right? Right. I'm just curious uh, about your folks. So what did you feel you needed to do to make them happy? Well, actually... To uh, make them proud of you. Since uh, I was sort of an only child... Uh, I was eat soup. My siblings were much older than I was. Uh, they were more focused, I think, on keeping me happy hmm. than I was on keeping them happy hmm. as the equivalent of an only child. Right. A very late, very late child. How, how much older were your siblings? Well, my next older brother was nine years older. The brother beyond him was 13 years older, and yes. my sister was 14 years older oh, than nice. I. With the same parents? Yes, same parents. Same parents. And so did you... Are you implying I'm a mistake? Uh, <laughs> no, but perhaps a surprise. <laughs> a very pleasant surprise. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. I can, in a little way, I can relate to that. My, my older brother's seven years older than me. Yeah. And while we're very close, you know, it's not until I was in high school that we even had a couple of things we could share together or have in common. And of course he was off and had developed his own life, you know, while I'm still at home before I'd gone off to college. Exactly. You understand it then miles. And, right. and the same for yeah. me, by the way, I was late. I was a pleasant surprise. I hope <laughs> for my parents and my oldest brother was much older. My next brother was older and yes. out of the house early. So I was pretty much raised with too much attention like you. Yeah. Yeah. And did, but it never felt like it was too much attention. You, you had a, good relationship in your youth with your parents and oh yes no it, it it was a great relationship and actually with my siblings when they were around you know the other but, parents yeah the other parents <laughs> uh they would uh take pretty good care of me actually uh, they'd take me on dates for instance when they went to sports games you huh. know basketball games or football games they now, would take you as their date or they'd, they'd let take, you come no, with they'd their take me along on their so date. you could learn how to do it so i could learn how to do it yeah <laughs> then they would tuck me in the rumble seat of my younger brother's ford uh even in a blizzard you know 
uh, because he and his date were sitting inside, sure. and I was sitting outside, little Herbie, towering <laughs> against the elements and trying to remain strong and not cry. And not look. And not look. <laughs> yeah, and, not. <laughs> and, and was New Jersey home all the way up through high school? Yes, actually through college. Is that right? Yeah. But well, you don't say Joycey. No, you see, that's Haddon Heights is in the southern part. Oh, that's the part. That's that, the garden. Part. That's the exactly. That's right. the part that earned the sobriquet, the, the Garden, garden State. State. That's yeah. right. Uh, so one of the things I'm interested in, Herb, is heroes. So when you were a little boy, who was your hero? Well, I'll tell you, Richard. That was a large part of my education, uh, and uh, a large part of my. Uh, motivation. Uh, first of all, I was born during the depression and my family was not particularly affected by that economically because, uh, a lot of people were buying a lot of soup cost 10 cents a can mm. and you could put it on bread. And, uh, I would go to visit some of my friends in grammar school in the neighborhood and they would be having Wheaties for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And so uh, one of the things that uh, it taught you was to uh, uh, recognize that bad times can come. And uh, that really was uh, part of the formulation of my credo for Southwest Airlines, that we manage in good times so that we'll do well in bad times. Hmm. And uh, that we don't get carried away by euphoria when times are good. And uh, so that was very instructive. And then, of course, uh, uh, at the end of the Depression, uh, came into the Second World War. And my family of six was immediately disintegrated uh, by the war. Mm. Uh, my next older brother was killed in 1942. Mm. My father died in 43. My other brother, older brother, the oldest brother, uh, uh, went into the Navy. And my sister, went to New York at RCA as an expediter to expedite war materials that uh, RCA was furnishing. So we went from six to two uh, within a very, very short uh, period of time. And uh, my mother really became my sole parent for about four years. And fortunately, I had the right mother because she was not only uh, very good at uh, sort of taking care of me in an unobtrusive way, let me say, with deafness. Uh, But she was also very interested in politics. She was very interested in business. And she was very interested in ethics and principles. And she and I would sit up till 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning talking about things like that, Uh, you know, when I was 7 or 8. And so she was a tremendous uh, influence uh, on me. Uh, not only in terms of care, uh, but in terms of intellectual development and in terms of ethics. Uh, for instance, she, she told me, she said, Herb, never judge anybody by title or position. Uh, judge them as individuals. And right after that, a very good example came along because a fellow who considered himself to be the king of our little town and would stroll regally past my house ignoring anyone else, uh, was indicted and sent sent to prison for embezzling. Hmm. And I said, 
I think that's what my mom was talking about. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and she said, never, never demean any person uh, based on title or position. And that uh, everybody has to work together and understand each other in order to be effective. And, of course, there you were in the middle of World War II, which is probably the greatest instance of teamwork mm. and total involvement by, the, by our society uh, that we've ever had. I mean, everybody was involved in it to some degree, either through relatives in the armed services or friends in the armed services. Uh, I remember in grammar school, uh, we would collect tinfoil, for the war effort, uh, we would collect uh, uh, oil uh, for the war effort, which was used in making munitions. Uh, we'd knit Afghans, Afghan squares, huh. you know, for the uh, uh, service people uh, who were injured and in hospitalization. And so you got this feeling of kinship and togetherness that 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 bred a really strong feeling of societal togetherness and the necessity of everybody working in sync to accomplish victory in World War II. And that was another formative, very valuable experience for me in that respect. Not to mention uh, being a devotee of reading about all the strategies uh, that we employed then and later, but my initial interest was during the Second World War. The military strategies, uh, they were very useful to me in helping to start Southwest Airlines and... uh, taking Southwest Airlines through its earlier years of constant warfare uh, Mm. with the other carriers who were trying to keep us out of business and then put us out of business. And uh, I used military strategy uh, uh, to a great degree. And I made the statement one time when somebody asked me about that, they said, what's what's all this about you and military strategy? And I said, you probably don't understand. The airline business is the closest thing to warfare in peacetime. (laughs) I believe it. And you've been very supportive of the military. Oh, yes. Very, very, very supportive. Very close. Yeah. yeah. Very, very supportive uh, up till today. Can we just talk a little bit more about that formative time? Your mother sounds like an extraordinary woman. She she, she was, yeah. And so you were, how, how old were you when your brother passed? Uh, I was um, 11. So you're 11 years old. And in the course of two years, your brother is gone, your father is gone, your other siblings have left. Right. You, can, can you talk a little bit about what that did to you as far as uh, your, your sense of identity, how to move forward? Uh, it's, it's, it's you and your mom now, and you take a genuine interest in the military and in aviation, but you're still trying to get through high school. Yeah, well, well junior actually, high school. Grand I was school. trying to get into high school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'll tell you that that is a really interesting question, uh, and it somehow the conjunction of those things, uh, the Great Depression, the followed by World War II, uh, and the shrinking of my family. Uh, created a sense of responsibility. Mm. Uh, And when I say that, what I mean is, without any urging from my mother, she never said, you know, go get a job. Uh, I started working uh, when I was 12 uh, as branch manager for the Philadelphia Bulletin. 
Now, <laughs> that's some title, isn't it? After all, here I was a branch manager. Basically, I had to wrestle and punch all the other newsboys each day to get them to deliver the paper. <laughs> and my salary was truly a plutocrat salary. It was $2.50 a week. <laughs> wow. But I also worked at the post office during Christmas, worked at the drugstore, uh, cut lawns, worked in the Camel Soup factory for uh, five or six summers. As a matter of fact, in a, a Fortune magazine interview, I referred to the Camel Soup Company as being a principal educational influence on my life. And the president sent me a letter and he said, here, I thought we were just making soup. I didn't realize we were higher Building education institution. <laughs> Well, I bet you learned more from those early work experiences uh, than you did in any classroom. I mean, alone to be 12 years old and to learn how to motivate your peers to go out there and hustle selling paper. Yes. That's no easy feat. No, it's not. It wasn't. <laughs> you got to learn how to make it worth their while yep. and then learn how to take a commission on top of that. <laughs> I never did. <laughs> <laughs> well, on 250. What would be the commission? Yeah. <laughs> two, two cents. And it was funny because, uh, uh, you know, v, uh, I guess it was, uh, yeah, VJ Day. Uh, nobody showed up to serve the papers, as yeah. you can imagine. So I get a call from the Philadelphia Bulletin to come over and meet with its editorial board. And my mother said, and I want you to go alone. So I go over to Philadelphia and I walk into this darkened room with walnut paneling. And, and again, you're how old? These, at that time I was probably, what, 14. Uh -huh. Yeah. And they're sitting back there. They looked like some kind of, like members of the Inquisition, you know? <laughs> mm -hmm. And so little Herbie goes toddling in and I sit down and this one guy in a very deep uh, sort of... Uh, peremptorial voice says why weren't any of the newspapers served in Haddon Heights on VJ Day and I said well sir because none of the newsboys paper boys showed up to serve them oh fine okay <laughs> that's enough <laughs> end of discussion end of discussion I said you know you could have just said, you know what? It's just a slow news day. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, you know what? I, that may have been, that may have been uh, the origin of somewhat of my distaste for bureaucracy for bureaucracy's sake. <laughs> Makes sense. And so you're, you then uh, are in high school. You've got uh, a number of jobs. You're making money. You're also helping bring income into the household, supporting your mom. What, uh, what piques your interest in high school, are you playing many sports? Or are you more focused on having a job outside? No, I did it all. Uh, I played three sports in high school and uh, at the same time uh, worked periodically outside the home. And, and I'm not sure that I was doing that for my mother in retrospect hmm. uh, because she never said, you know, I want you to go get a job, number one. And number two, uh, when I got my first uh, paycheck, $2.50, from the uh, Philadelphia Bulletin, I went to a bakery, and she loves strawberry tarts. Mm. And so <laughs> I bought her some strawberry tarts and took them home and gave them to her. And I said, Mom, I want you to know from here on out, every time I get my paycheck, 
I'm going to buy you strawberry tarts. So about a year later, she said, Enough already. No, no. She said, <laughs> she said when do I get my next installment of strawberry tarts? <laughs> she said, I think a year has gone by <laughs> since the first delivery. And I said, well, I'm spending money on the movies, Mom. <laughs> right. So, Herbert, was there any teacher in high school or any coach that had an influence on you? Or do you remember? Oh, yeah. Yeah, very and much how? so. Who, well, who first of all, you? the teachers uh, were wonderful in grammar school. I mean, the things that they taught us in those days, uh, uh, in some cases, even high schools don't teach. Mm. You know, and colleges get into remedial education uh, when people go to college. Uh, it was a much more demanding uh, educational system, and it started at a very early age. And uh, those teachers were just fantastic. And then in high school, I played football, basketball, and track, ran tr- shot-footed. And uh, Coach Baker was a, uh, a very flinty sort of individual. Uh, but uh, he was very inspiring in, a, in the way he kept discipline, you know, among all of us high school guys mm-hmm. and uh, very effectively in terms of our athletic results. And it showed me that there's, it, there's a tough love way to accomplish it too. Yeah, I guess I might put was, it in that context. He was on the tough side. He was on the tough side, yeah. And then did you know in high school that you might want to go on and study law? No, let, that... me, let me just tell you, to be honest, if I might. Please. Yeah. Uh, one of the biggest breaks that I received in high school, which your question rekindled in my dwindling mind, <laughs> uh, is that the physics teacher was the assistant football coach. And when I went into my physics class, frankly, I thought it was probably about laxatives. <laughs> But I got an A. <laughs> <laughs> Why is it that physics and math teachers are usually the coaches? You know what? That is true. It's never the no, Rich, English teacher true. or the Spanish teacher. Or... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, frankly, what's a better real-life physics lesson That's than true. gridiron? Yeah. yeah. I mean, and it, collision. It, yeah, and exactly. collision. Uh, mass force plus speed. And uh, math, because you've got 100 yards. That's a tough one. <laughs> That's really tough. And try to convert it into kilometers. <laughs> So then, uh, yeah, so off to college? Off to college, yeah, yeah. Western University in Middletown, Connecticut. And how'd you pick that? And there I was. A, how'd they pick you? Why Connecticut? Well, Close by? I, actually, the principal of one of our biggest rivals, biggest rival high schools, uh, was very desirous in taking me up there hmm. uh, to see the campus and interview for admission. And... Uh, so I went there and fell in love with the school just instantaneously. I think it was the marble steps. You know? <laughs> that's, that's my recollection. I was very deep at the time, you yeah, know? Yeah. yeah, and so I went to Wesleyan where I became, I guess you would say, a uh, hunter-gatherer of ideas. Great. That's great. great. That's the way it should be. I think so. Yeah. No, I really do. Was there something there that m- moved you towards the practice of law or wanted to go to law school? Or? Well, the way I joke about it is, Richard, I joke about it uh, by saying, uh, you know, I took an aptitude test. And it said, uh, your primary aptitude is to be a writer, uh, 
an editor or a lawyer. And I sat down and I thought about it. I really cogitated to the extent that I could. Little bourbon helping me cogitate. <laughs> and it suddenly occurred to me if I went to law school, I could put off working for another three years. <laughs> <laughs> so miles off, I went to law school. <laughs> Now, before, before law school, tell us a little bit, uh, because you are uh, one of the great connoisseurs of bourbon, and you had mentioned drinking bourbon in college. Did that, did that start in college? Did it start in high... When did, when did you fall in love with the great brown bourbon? Really in, in high school. In high school? Not that I drank no, much you, of you it. You never had it in high school. It That's when just, you fell in love with it. It was just, just <laughs> occasional, you know? But that, that was your, your drink from the beginning. From the beginning. Was yes. it yeah. bourbon and Coke or bourbon, bourbon? Just Great. bourbon and branch water. Oh. And you stuck with it for the rest of your life? Basically, yeah. I mean, I don't want you to think that I'm anal about it, uh, because if they run out of other drinks, I'm willing to drink You're something else. You're an opportunity player. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, of course. I love opportunism. I think that's a good... And when did you land on wild turkey? You know, that is interesting. I love that comment that you made that time, by the way. We can't, this is Miles. We were talking because Herb was chairman of my board at the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas, and they we were talking about tightening monetary policy. And Herb said, no, "You can't go from cold turkey to wild turkey overnight." Yeah. <laughs> and uh, that's one of the best lines you ever gave me. But, but I'm just curious: when did you discover wild turkey? When I was in college, I don't know what year. As a matter of fact, I'm not sure I remember. <laughs> <laughs> what decade, but anyhow, <laughs> that's when I discovered it. That's fantastic. <laughs> and uh, did you immediately take to law school? Did you know that in this chapter of your life that this really was your calling? Yes. Yes. Because in truth and in fact, uh, one of the uh, people who had a great influence on my life, uh, who was a Wesleyan graduate and chairman of the Board of Trustees, at Wesleyan and uh, chairman of the board at the NYU Law School and the chief justice of New Jersey wow. and uh, mm. the youngest uh, president of the American Bar Association uh, and a whole bunch of other things. So an underachiever. Took 40 years. Yeah, an underachiever. <laughs> and he kind of took me under his wing. And looking back on that, I know now that it was pity. He did it out of pity. That's why. How do you how do you how do you figure? What did he see in you that he pitied? I think someone who was sloppy, undisciplined, huh. perhaps imbibed a little too much on occasion, just on occasion, and really needed help. But he saw the tremendous potential. Well, I'm not sure what he saw. If he saw tremendous potential, he have, must have had a moat in both eyes. <laughs> <laughs> what was his name? Do you remember? Uh, Arthur T. Vanderbilt. Oh. oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And he was a great mentor in your life. Yeah, and he wasn't, uh, you know, I don't use the word mentor myself because it sounds to me like, you know, it refers to a Roman soldier. Mm -hmm. And uh, I try to... Stay away from perhaps the bureaucratic implications of it where, oh, I'm mentoring, you know, once a month I go through this checklist. Uh, but he, he, he treated me like a uh, protege, I guess, in effect. 
And he was not interfering. He was not dictatorial at all. Uh, he would make quiet suggestions to me at times, you know, and and uh, he supported me in, in going to law school and getting one of the scholarships that he had set up called the Root Tilden Scholarship. And uh, then he supported me in getting uh, a job as a clerk with the New Jersey Supreme Court. And he was always there. Now, there's one thing I've got to tell you. He emphasized how important it was to have clear handwriting. Hmm. So he was at an American Bar Association meeting in San Francisco. And he sent me a handwritten letter at the Deke House at Western University. Which was so illegible. <laughs> the address was so illegible. It went to three other towns before it got to me. <laughs> I, I've never mentioned that to anybody before. Wow, this is a first. <laughs> And, and, but uh, he was a wonderfully inspirational uh, person. Yep. And boy, did he ever teach you that you could be, uh, uh, you could, you know, do eight tasks at once. Mm-hmm. So he inspired. Oh, yeah. But, he, but did he also, are there things you do now that you learn from him then? Yeah. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, I'll just give you a little, little figment. Uh, not a figment because that implies you. Made it up. Made it up. <laughs> what is it, Miles? Is it, it give you a little fig? Uh, yeah, well, certainly. I mean, it's not a fig leaf. Extend a little. <laughs> yeah. But uh, he used to take a uh, month off and go to uh, Montego Bay. Hmm. And he would send a trunk, one of those old-fashioned steamer-type trunks down there. And you know what he read for a month? Nothing but novels. Uh. Because he said they refreshed his imagination they gave him new insights and perceptions of things mm-hmm. that he was interested in. And uh, so I kind of read novels myself. But I, I read them not just for enjoyment, but for education. Yep. And they're all clean. So who, so who, <laughs> who are your favorite writers? Or what kind of novels do you read? Are these mysteries? Or are they? Well, I read everything. Uh, I read about physics, you know. Because you want to be a high school coach before it's over? <laughs> that qualified me. But I read the book Massive on the Higgs boson two months before they discovered it. Wow. And I wrote to the Nobel Committee and said, perhaps you've missed something. But I knew about the Higgs boson before you guys discovered it. How about giving me a Nobel Prize? Yeah. Or at least the, an override. At least an override, yeah. And but there's some Winston Churchill, obviously. You know, I just love him and his you, writings. When do you mostly like to read? Is it kind of before, at the end of the day, as you crawl into bed and you'll set aside? I always read You're every day. Bedside table reading. Yeah, except I sleep longer now. I used to sleep just five hours a day. Goodness. Yeah, because if you've got the rest of the airline industry trying to put you under, it's good to be awake while they're asleep. <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah. but uh, i can't stay awake that long anymore but i always you read I won't before, go to bed you read as I, you go off to sleep yeah i won't go to bed unless i have a book mm-hmm. so herb i want to ask you about the transition from and why going from being a lawyer to founding this airline well what, it, what inspired you to do that it really richard uh the two seem rather disparate i understand the question but uh uh, when 
a client of mine uh, proposed starting an intrastate airline in the state of Texas and broached it to me, and I thought, hmm, well, you know, that sounds a little weird to me. But I did some research on PSA from California and decided that Texas was really ripe for that type of service. Where were you living at the time? In San Antonio. In San Antonio. How long had you been in Texas? Oh, uh, gee, uh, I started coming at that six, 46, 56, about 60 years. Wow. Yeah. So you identified as a Texan at the time of this well, co- you know, early it, conversation. One of the things that, uh, uh, and this is, this is sort of parenthetical to what your dad uh, was addressing, Miles, but uh, I married a lady from San Antonio, Joan Negley. Uh, she was going to Connecticut College in New London. And uh, after we got married, lived in New Jersey, and I worked in New Jersey, uh, but worked for the court. And in those days, the court was like going to college. You had a long summer vacation, a mm-hmm. couple of weeks at Easter, a couple of weeks at Christmas, and would always go to Texas. Hmm. But Joan never, ever mentioned moving to San Antonio. Hmm. Never did. And uh, I finally decided that uh, my entrepreneurial spirit uh, would have a better opportunity uh, to be unleashed in Texas, particularly the Texas of those days when the new oil rich were coming into being and they were plungers, you know. And so I told Joan I wanted to move to Texas. And she had never said a peep about it, but she was paring car- uh, carrots, skinning carrots, paring mm, carrots, sure. whatever you do to carrots, you know. I don't really eat them much, but <laughs> anyhow, anyhow, and little tears started running down oh. her cheeks. Wow. So I moved to Texas. And, How long had you been married at the time before moving to Texas? Oh, well, let me see. Uh, before the full move, the final decisive move, um, Five years. Something like that. Well, and I'm not trying to remember when I got married either, Miles. Because <laughs> you remember. September 9th, exactly. 1955. What time? <laughs> September 9th, 1955. I want that recorded. Duly noted. So you came here to practice law with a law firm, a big firm? Yeah, I joined I joined a firm in San Antonio, Matthews, Nellon, McFarland, and Barrett. And then I... Uh, joined with a couple of other lawyers to set up our own law firm. And this client comes to you yeah, and says, we're thinking about doing a PSA type thing. In, yeah, in Texas, in right. In Texas. And? Yeah, and so I said, finally said, okay. Mm-hmm. And uh, then we get into four and a half years of litigation, where the only business of Southwest Airlines was litigating, litigating. with yeah. other carriers. Well, but it's a good thing you were the litigator. I said, you know, this is pretty fascinating. I never expected to take three trips to the United States Supreme Court and be involved in 31 judicial administrative proceedings trying to get free enterprise to work. But your experience as a young man, as a clerk. Yes, and all this rolls together a little yeah, bit. Yeah, no, right? it was it was very Who would have helpful. Thought this? Huh? And it sounds like from what you've said already on several times, several instances, you've brought up a distrust of bureaucracy. That this idea of um, overstructure just is counter to getting things done. Yes. Yeah, I think that's true. Now I do understand. And yet teamwork is important, right? The whole well, Yeah, right. But you know, it seems to me that there's a right mix, I think. 
of the two. Uh, but uh, if you overdo it, I think basically the implicit message is that you don't really trust your people, that you need a big police force to make sure they're doing what they should do and that they're doing it right. So you bring in more bureaucrats. Mm-hmm. And you end up with more bureaucrats than you do managers and <laughs> yeah, operators. Exactly. <laughs> and we we approach it differently. We just sell our people. We have every confidence in you. We love you. You make the on-the-spot decisions with respect to our customers, you know, in the field. And uh, uh, if you if you go astray in the sense that what you do is too costly, we won't put in rules. We won't add manuals. We'll just talk to you personally about it, mm-hmm. which we did. Mm-hmm. So that everybody didn't get swept up. You know, that's that's so often a tendency. The ground operations manuals, just to give you an example, bureaucracy, I was in San Antonio at the ticket counter and a customer asked the customer service agent a question. And the next thing I know, the customer service agent is going through these loose leaf manuals trying to find out what the answer to the question was. So I burnt the manuals, literally, not all of them, but burnt some of them symbolically and Colleen Barrett sat down and came up with about 19 pages of guidelines for leaders. And the first sentence was, these are just guidelines. Feel free to break them. Uh, <laughs> fantastic. And yeah. I'll, I'll tell you, I love Richard, you'll love this. I was talking to New York Society of Security Analysts, you know, and I was talking about how we really gave people, you know, a great deal of latitude because we trusted their instincts. We trusted the... Uh, their competency, and one of the one of the analysts stood up when I was finished doing Q and A, and he said, "What about control? You know, <laughs> don't you worry about not having any control?" And I said, "Oh no, I love it. Control involves responsibility, and the last thing I want to be is responsible." <laughs> <laughs> in in those early days, when it's endless litigation and which could have easily dissuaded the most majority of upstart companies. What was the core tenant of the Southwest airline business model? What was the, the nut of the idea was you offer a better regional airline service um, that currently exists in the marketplace? Well, actually, uh, it was an idealistic uh, devotion because today... Uh, what most people take for granted was rather rare when I started working on Southwest Airlines in 1966 and fall of 66 and uh, uh, only about, oh, I don't know, 15, 8% of the adults in America had ever flown on a single commercial flight. Mm -hmm. And Washington, the Civil Aeronautics Board, didn't worry too much about that because it was really involved in taking care of the carriers under its jurisdiction, a frequent frequent thing in government. Mm-hmm. And so if they got into trouble, they'd just say, oh, raise your fares, you know? And all of them would have to do it because they had to be in lockstep. So it got to the point where most of the American people couldn't afford to fly. And we said, you know, that's a pretty big market opportunity. 
no doubt. <laughs> if you're the talking majority. about 80% <laughs> of adults in the United States who have never flown. <laughs> and so we, uh, of course, wanted low costs, low fares. And uh, uh, it's essential for them to go together, by the way. Yeah, no. I know this is a real revelation, but <laughs> but other carriers have tried to <laughs> offer low fares with high costs, and that didn't last too long. And so that was the idea. But beyond that, it was to offer more for less money, not less for less money, mm-hmm. to offer far better on-time performance at Texas. Had ever than Texas had ever experienced previously, which we did, to uh, have a pleasant, relaxing, almost jovial atmosphere on the airplanes by just telling our flight attendants and customer service agents as well, unleash your personalities. Excellent. You know, it wasn't a program, but it was that if you like telling jokes, tell jokes. You know, if you like singing, sing, because we want you to be yourself. We didn't hire you to be somebody else. Mm-hmm. We didn't hire you to be an automaton or a robot. We hired you because you're you, and we want you to be you on the airplanes, off the airplanes. The other thing is there was an intense focus on the general office and getting people to understand that they, too, have customers. And it might be the financial department that's dealing with ground operations or some other department, but we want the same kind of golden rule approach, servant heart approach to people in other departments as well as our customers. And it was kind of funny, Miles, because uh, it used to be regarded as a conundrum. I would be asked uh, doing presentations. Now, this is going way back. Of course, in the Neanderthal days, I mean, if you found fire, you know, you had to keep it alive because you didn't know how to start it. But uh, uh, they would say, uh, who comes first, your customers, uh, your employees, or your shareholders? And I'd say, that's not a conundrum. Your employees come first. And if you treat them right and take care of them, they treat your customers right and take care of them. And guess what? Your shareholders profit from Mm -hmm. that. And then I announced, by the way, this caused a little stir because back then it was just kind of a thoughtless, vacant shibboleth. That's your unofficial motto, right? That's that's your business creed. That's very onomatopoetic. I just want to say, no, that's my personality. (laughs) But it was regarded as almost uh, one of the commandments that the customer is always right. Mm Mm-hmm. And I announced that the customer was not always yeah. right. And it was the service to our people and how we esteemed them if we allowed customers to abuse them. Well, I got a little kickback on that, but I had a perfect example. And that was a lady, she picked up a stanchion at the ticket counter and hit our customer service Whoa. agent over the head with it. My goodness. Now, I said, after I got kind of attacked in a number of quarters, you know, about the customer is not always right, I would send them a little note and tell them this story. And I said, according to your thesis, I should have sent a note to the customer. (laughs) I just want to tell you uh, that you're always right. And we congratulate you upon your unerring aim. And uh, (laughs) certainly UPS will be delivering another stanchion (laughs) 
for your use the next time you fly on Southwest Airlines. Mm-hmm. That kind of brought the message home to some extent. I want to ask, uh, you're an upbeat person, and you inspire other people to be upbeat. Were, was there a time during this process where you thought, I can't do this, or I want to throw in the towel, or we're not going to make it? or No. Never, 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 ever, not even during those four years of litigation when you were setting everything no, up? No, because I was angry. I was inspired by my ideals. You know, basically, I said, if this can't work, then the whole system doesn't work. Mm-hmm, a right. free enterprise. Well, it took a little grinding away. Yeah, you know, absolutely. For, but I got to tell you, in another lawsuit, uh, they appealed to the United States Supreme Court, asked for a review by the United States Supreme Court, and that was the third time in... I don't know, five years or six years. I mean, more than U.S. Steel and General Motors together. And when I went to file my brief in opposition to the grant of certiorari, opposing review, I was a little heartened when the insistent clerk looked at the caption on the brief and said to me, are they picking on your little Texas airline again? Oh. <laughs> Bingo. <laughs> Bingo. <laughs> tell, tell me... Uh... You, it, it sounds like you had incredible employees from the onset and how critical that was. You said, oh, yes. let your personality shine. You feel like singing, sing. You feel like dancing. You, you are who we hire and you represent this company. And yeah. uh, you put your employees first before the customer and that pays your own. Early on, what was your hiring practice? How did you find these great people? How did you kind of vet them, so to speak? And then once the well, thing takes off, you're hiring a lot. I mean, there has to be a way to screen people that will do what you want them to do, be themselves and be successful. Well, you can't just take everybody off the street. We, yeah, uh, we were religious about hiring and uh, we spent untold time and effort on getting the right people. And we did subtle things uh, that I think uh, both of you will appreciate. Uh, we would hold group interviews and we'd ask... Uh, one of the uh, interviewees to tell everybody in the group about the most embarrassing experience they'd ever had or how they used humor to extricate themselves huh. from an embarrassing experience. And we would watch the other people and their reaction. And if they were smiling or laughing or rooting the presenter on, we hired them. Interesting. If they were so interested in their own navels that they were just sitting there contemplating them, we didn't hire them. And we would have people who would go out and sit among applicants in a reception room to see what they were like when they weren't being interviewed. Hmm. Yeah. And are these still tactics that you employ today? Yeah. Well, one of the things, yes. Yeah. To, to some extent, they are. Uh, I mean, I, I don't know because uh, I'm not actively involved in day to day operations today. But uh, uh, it was very, very successful. Uh, and one of the things that uh, I loved about it was that our people got into it. So if an applicant was traveling across our system to Dallas for an interview, we'd get a call from a customer service agent in Albuquerque that said, this applicant just came through here and treated me like crap. Mm. Out of there. Yeah, yeah. No hire. Yeah. No hire. Now, and the other thing is, we took our best people from each of our departments. 
and made them part of the interviewing and hiring process. So that they have a sense of ownership about it. Ownership about it and understanding, you know, of what it requires. Because different groups, you know, have different cultures. Sure. And uh, here are people from that culture who had distinguished themselves uh, and were very helpful in telling us uh, who would be great and who wouldn't. And it worked. It worked beautifully. Mm. As a matter of fact, I don't know whether you know this or not. I don't know whether I ever told your dad. But uh, we we were finally asked to hold a corporate day. And people would come from all around the world, not just the United States, to inquire how we hired, mm-hmm. how we trained, and how we motivated. And uh, we did that for probably a year and a half uh, or two years. One of the things that we noticed, that I noticed at least, was that many of the companies were hoping they would get something as simple in concept as Einstein's E equals MC squared. <laughs> An equation. They didn't realize that this was like putting together a mosaic that's done piece by piece every day. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think probably, probably a good many of them thought it was too burdensome for them to undertake the way that, that we did it. Well, and you had built it over time too, it wasn't. Yeah, we'd built it over time, and we had we had one attendee, and I just loved the video because when they all came in, we made them do the Macarena, and so I mean, not Al Gore though, right? No, not, uh, no, no, no. But they interviewed some of the attendees when they left. I think one guy probably didn't quite get the spirit of the classes because the interviewer said to him, what are you going to do when you get back to your business? He said, I'm going to make everybody do the Macarena every day. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's not exactly our point. (laughs) And actually that young man went on to develop Starbucks. So what was one of your most embarrassing moments? You were asked that question, which I'm asking. Are there, are there Richard, many? <laughs> I will give you the same answer that I gave to the staff at the Smithsonian Institute when I was giving a speech there. And during the question and answer session, an attendee stood up and said, what is the worst mistake that you've ever made? And I said, well, I've never made one. I'm infallible. As a matter of fact, off the record, the Pope calls me two or three times a week to check up. (laughs) He's he's very good like that. (laughs) (laughs) I think the biggest mistake from a business standpoint, biggest mistake I made, seriously, was when we acquired... uh, uh, Muse Air. I remember that. And uh, the lawyers, I listened to the lawyers, hmm. outside lawyers. You should know better having been I know, a lawyer. I know. That's why I say it was so stupid on my part, who told us not to integrate Muse Air into Southwest Airlines for a variety of reasons. I won't bore you with all the reasons, but I succumbed to that. And so we had this group that was owned by Southwest Airlines but was not really part of Southwest Airlines. And I think cultural differences probably destroy more mergers 
and acquisitions than anything else. And so we created sort of a cultural difference. Now, I will tell you what I did when we acquired them. I wrote all the employees a letter and said, Southwest has rescued you from the edge of bankruptcy. And we're willing to invest $25 million in saving you. But if it goes over $25 million, we're going to have to shut you down. So they had notice in advance. And then when we shut it down, it was kind of interesting because I was always really respected labor unions and their leaders. And uh, we gave them a a heck of a uh, severance allowance, the ones that we didn't hire directly at Southwest Airlines. And I actually got two letters from uh, labor union leaders thanking me for the severance package that we gave those employees. Hmm. But it, but that was a huge mistake on my part and why I succumbed to the legalese. Looking back on it, I have no idea. And I was sober. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit, because I think uh, a lot of people that listen to these podcasts are um, uh, entrepreneurs and, and, uh, builders of, of companies. When when Southwest was first getting off the ground, you've got this incredible product, but you're also at an incredible time, the late 60s of media television is entering its golden age and print media. What was your, uh, how did you view marketing? I mean, well, you're introducing this this new product and marketing such a big play of that. And once people are on board, it speaks for themselves. This is a whole new vibe. The All the customers are, employees are great, but uh, how did you initially market yourself? Excellent question. First of all, we spent in the first year three quarters of our funds. Wow. On marketing. Okay. Secondly, well, if there's no demand. You're not going to be able to do anything. Exactly. Right? Yeah. And secondly, the fact that the other airlines, and I know this is going to affect both of your hearts, <laughs> oppressed us so badly. It attracted a lot of national attention. Is that right? Oh, yeah. I mean, NBC, Nightly News, and so forth and so on, which was very, very helpful to us because it brought to the attention of a whole lot of people, you know, that they were trying to knock us out of the box. Did you focus on on TV spots or on print spots initially or local in Texas? We did did everything at that time. Uh, TV, uh, print... Uh, radio, and uh, uh, also the fact that uh, I had nothing to do with this, by the way, uh, because I didn't want to be the CEO. I didn't become the CEO until later. But I also think that probably the hot pants uh, had a little bit to do uh, with our being noticed. Now, when I say that is, I did not put the hot pants in. But at that time, they were fashionable. I mean, you'd see matrons walking down Main Street in San Antonio in hot pants. But I had a feeling... There's nothing worse than a matron. (laughs) (laughs) That is Richard Fisher talking, not I. (laughs) uh, But uh, I'll tell you how powerful it was. So that was very helpful. Mm -hmm. But uh, a professor from the University of Texas told me that he was at the airport in Budapest 
flying Hungarian airline. And this was long after we did away with hot pants. I actually did away with them, to mm -hmm. tell you the truth. But he says he looks up, <laughs> this is in Budapest, and behind their counter, they have about a six feet long picture of Southwest Airlines flight attendants <laughs> in hot pants. How about that? Yeah. <laughs> and then we went into San Francisco, and we hadn't had hot pants for years when we went in there. And the San Francisco Chronicle, the headline on the business page was, the hot pants airline is coming to town. <laughs> so even after they disappeared, they were still, uh, the influence was left. Influence <laughs> was left. And, you know, we had some, uh, some of our employees that protested. They didn't want to do away with the hot pants. So we came up with a little, I guess you'd call it a skirt, a little scored or something right. that they could wear. During the transition. <laughs> Doing all of this, of course, by Mike, but what you can't see is Herb is wearing these hot pants right That's now. Right. Just <laughs> yeah. on a, on a week Forget about the patrons. This is, what, <laughs> do you think about, what do you think about my ankles? Huh? <laughs> I think that, they've always looked great. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Have you had an eye exam recently? <laughs> I'm connected to your last comment. <laughs> so we were talking a little bit earlier about... Uh, President Bush's book of paintings. Oh, yes. But you were talking also about your copious reading and Churchill and things you like to read. If you were going to give Miles or uh, somebody a gift of books, what would you give them? Name t or say two books. Yeah, I, I have to think about that, Richard, because I've probably read, I don't know. A billion. 1,500 books. This week. You'll <laughs> 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 see, that's it. You know. I'm a very fast reader. I don't comprehend or retain anything. But boy, do I read fast. Well, I think uh, the first, The Last Lion by William Manchester, uh, that, the first one of that series. There's two in the vault, yeah. Three, yeah, I think. Three. There's three. No, three. Uh, I thought that was a, a marvelous book. Uh, the uh, Indian physician who wrote uh, The Emperor of All Maladies about cancer oh. and now has a new book out on the gene. And it's not just the science that attracted me. It's also he's a fabulous, you know, he's a fabulous writer. Hmm. And, uh, you know, one time or another along the way, I've read most of the Greek philosophers, which to me has sort of been where the fountain of wisdom started in all kinds of respects. And uh, so I found those very valuable. Do you find yourself, do you try to apply, say, the discipline of Stoicism to your life? And do you well, believe yeah. in Seneca I mean, and the great yeah, Stoic Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because uh, uh, I never let anything get me down. Mm -hmm. You know? That's pretty clear. No matter what <laughs> it was. You wouldn't have succeeded if you no, did. No, but I was, I was Stoic. And I knew about the Stoics. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Will you will you put on a coarse tunic once a month and live off a dollar a day? Oh no, just you, to make you, you, no, you forgot something else. It's not just the coarse tunic; it's a self-flagellation. That's right. Yeah, and the hot, when you're wearing hot pants, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> come in very handy. Well, I will say, in earnestness, kind of in the 
entrepreneurial circles now in Silicon Valley, stoicism is really on the rise again, just as a movement. And uh, oh, is that right? I didn't know that. It's true in sales, particularly of uh, Seneca's writings and right. kind of the the great Stoic philosophers. It is in the um, it's in the ether again, and there is something to be said for just realizing that you can live on a dollar a day, making yourself uncomfortable for that purpose. Right. You know, the people yeah, sure is. will go into restaurants wearing all purple and just lie down on the ground for five minutes just to realize that it's not going to kill them. And yep. it's okay to feel comfortable. Yep. On the other hand, everybody leaves the restaurant when they do that. <laughs> Pardon me? Everybody leaves the restaurant when they <laughs> <Yeah>. do <laughs> So if, oh. if oh. you were, this is a question actually that Miles See, I minored formulated. in philosophy in college. Ah. And how do you find how do you find these days uh, book recommendations with someone who has mm. such an appetite and a, a diet? I, for I this? read the reviews. What do you find? You still find the uh, uh, the Sunday New York Times book review? Do you read the? I read that. I read a whole lot of different reviews. Kirkus, and then I try to sample each book. Uh-huh. Uh huh. You know, with at least on the web uh, to see what I might think about it. So you might start one and not finish it. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Many times. Yeah. Yeah, me too. Yeah, I've done that on a few occasions, but mostly, you know, I'm such a conservative guy that way. Says the man wearing hot pants. <laughs> Says, yeah. <laughs> I, they're, they're I not wish our pink. listeners could just see this now. They're the not tunic, pink. the hot pants, the <laughs> yeah. flagellation cheese. But, uh, but most of the time, I say, I've already invested an hour in this book. Sure. I've finished the darn thing. I hate to throw my investment. And I, there's one that I've got to tell you about. It was a 1,400-page book on the origin of English railroads, of which there have been probably 108,000. You know, they had these tiny little railroads from <laughs> Hertford to Hertfordshire and so forth and so on. Mm -hmm. And uh, my wife asked me, she said, why... Are you reading that? Because I read it from cover to cover. I said, because besides the author, I want to be the only other person who read it on the globe that has read <laughs> this book. <laughs> can, can you tell us a little bit about your uh, your media diet? What what do you actually subscribe to? in this day and age where it's endless noise everywhere mm. and everybody's everybody's yelling, but nobody's really saying anything. Uh, w what do you actually read in the morning, journals and periodicals? And then uh, do you go to the cinema? Do you enjoy a TV show every now and then? What, what's your kind of media diet from print to... Uh, yeah, I don't have much of a media diet as far as uh, uh, the cinema is concerned. Uh, but uh, I do read two papers every morning. And I do get a number of different magazines that I'm interested in. One of them is The Week. Have you all seen that? The Week's superb. I, I, I read Isn't The Week it superb? all the time. It's great. Fantastic. Yeah, and I love the fact that they give you conflicting views. Mm -hmm. You know, they'll have this column urging something from Italy and another column saying the opposite. Yeah, I think that's superb, and I read that religiously. I read uh, The New York Times, uh, Dallas Morning News on a regular basis, New York Magazine, uh, Fortune, mm -hmm. uh, most of the time. And not the New Yorker, but New York Magazine. That's a great magazine. I love that magazine because I really want to get the feel of New yeah. York. 
Yeah. You know. It's great. They've done they've done a good job. And also they continue to innovate just on design and the aesthetic on the inside. They sure do. It's it's great. They sure do. And they still get first rate calmness. You with your interest in uh just in, in classic literature and uh philosophy, etc. Have you ever heard of uh Lapham's quarterly? Lewis Lapham, who Yes, was I've great, heard of it, but I, I've not seen it. It's a great publication. And essentially, just like the week that is the editor of editors, curates all that's out there this week and presents it to you in a digestible way. Oh. Lapham's does that through the great writings of all of history. So each one, it comes once, uh, four times a year, and each one is a theme, say, uh, home or family or spies. And it could be something that was published last week, or it could be a great Roman philosopher. And it's everything on that theme um, that's the greatest in print just kind of edited for you. And uh, it's it's beautiful. Wow. But we'll see. Speaking Do of, we speaking promised of, you, get... you'd get something out of this. <laughs> I... That's it, just so you know. What? <laughs> we promised you'd get something out of this interview. That's it. Oh, thank you. <laughs> oh, thank you. Because I was going to hustle on home and subscribe. <laughs> oh, I love it. You'll, you'll, we'll, we'll, we'll I follow love up. it. You'll like it. You'll like it a lot. Yeah. Okay. We've got a few just kind of quick questions just on your daily habits uh in in, in maintenance off the record <laughs> always off yes the record. off the record <laughs> what um <laughs> i know you talked earlier your sleeping habits sometimes change but when you wake up in the morning between waking up and before you go to the office what what are you doing each each morning well i'm having a smoke um, do, you, do you smoke in bed do you smoke in the bedroom no no, I don't. And you were anymore. referred to on the cover of a famous magazine as Puff Daddy. That's right. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so right, I so still you, do that against doctor's orders. Do you set an alarm clock or you naturally wake up? No, I set an alarm clock. So the alarm clock goes off. Yeah. You enjoy morning smoke? Yeah. The alarm clock goes off at 1030 a.m. Then I enjoy morning smoke. Not bad. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> if you could tell us how to sleep till 1030, we're going to Yeah, it's impossible. This. We'll it's do impossible. better than Southwest Airlines. You know, if you sleep till 1030, you're ready to be embalmed. <laughs> yeah. Well, he's talking 1030 at night, of course. <laughs> <laughs> and then I do the just the normal thing, ablutions and in, inhalations and, you know, stuff like that. Yep. So you don't send out emails or anything early in the morning or communications to your no office. I don't I don't do emails uh, and my incoming emails are received by Vicky Schuler right who is utterly delightful as a person and has and has the energy of radiates the energy of a small nuclear pile. You know, a fission plant. And is tolerant, I've and, and tolerant of me. And she gets them. Uh, because too many people express themselves, should I use the word inelegantly? Mm-hmm. Ah. <laughs> maybe a little too passionately. Maybe a too little, uh, uh, too much pejoratively in emails, which plaintiff's lawyers love to get. And. <laughs> Speaking of bureaucracy, guys, do you, have, can I, do you have time for another bureaucracy story? Please, sure. This plaintiff's lawyer was telling me that he brought an antitrust case against this company. And he said when he filed the lawsuit, you could see the clouds of smoke over Dallas because they were burning <laughs> their records. But he said they insisted that they go to 
company's warehouse. And there, some bureaucrat had concluded, well, we, we have to retain these records someplace, and had put them into boxes labeled bad stuff. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Where to immediately look. End bad of case. <laughs> End of case. <laughs> so I get emails, but I get them through a cutout. And then when you respond, do you dictate the response? Or yeah. will, you, will you write it out yes. yourself? Yeah. That's good. But speaking of social media emails, on Alquist Airlines is hot in terms of tweets, is it not? Yes. Southwest Airlines... Aren't you tweeted about a lot? ...has more favorable tweets than any other airline in the world. I wanted to give you that opportunity. According to a recent study conducted by a very reputable and esteemed research group. I just want to take a second to point out how significant that is, because uh, very seldom will people tweet when they're just in a great mood. I know. It's it's only when they're really peeved. Yeah. And, of course, we've all had crummy airline experiences. It just goes with the territory. And, uh, you know. But, Miles, let me remind you what Louis C.K. said. And Louis C.K. was talking about how people complain about small inconveniences in connection with flying. And he says, and don't they realize they're sitting in a chair in the sky? <laughs> He's absolutely right. It's amazing how it, immediately everything is incredible. Yeah. And then immediately we feel entitled to it. Yeah. You know, he, he tells this story where he's, he's on an airplane and uh, Internet on the airplane had just been invented. Yeah. The most incredible newest thing. They're 30,000 yeah. feet in the Internet. And the person, the stewardess comes on and says, I'm sorry, but the internet has just cut out. And the guy next to him goes, this is bullshit. <laughs> he said, are you kidding me? This is the most incredible. We are 30,000 feet in a chair moving 800 miles per hour, able to talk to anyone in the world. And it just happens to be down. And you feel that this is BS. People feel so entitled to the conveniences that are just yes. miraculous on earth. And now they have this megaphone. In their right. pocket that they can just spout away. And so they send out all these angry tweets. So for you to have the highest rating uh, positive tweets of yes. any airline in the world, well, that is a big deal. And let me tell you what shows through in those tweets. Because uh, you take a tweet from when we've had a mechanical or there's been a storm or something has delayed mm. an airplane. And even called cancellations in some instances like the recent Stella mm -hmm. in the Northeast. And you can tell that our people are doing a beautiful job because basically the tweets are saying, well, I'm stuck here for a couple of hours because of something or other. And I want to tell you, your people are fantastic. Your people have done exactly what I would ask them to do under these circumstances. Your people entertained us, you know. The singing flight attendants. During the wait. <laughs> well, right after 9-11 uh, when... Oh. You know, the commercial fleets were put down, and, of course, uh, you had an hour uh, for flights already in the air to find an airport to land at. Well, a lot of airplanes, commercial airplanes, had to land at airports that weren't on their system. So we were calling around <laughs> trying to figure out where everybody was, take care of the crews, make sure the customers were receiving the kind of attention they should receive. And there are two instances that are just emblematic of the greatness of our people. 
And one of them was, we called this hotel, off offline hotel, and said we'd like to uh, talk to the captain. And the manager of the hotel said, well, you can't. I said, why? He said, he just took all the passengers to the movies. <laughs> yeah. Fantastic. And we had the same experience with another one, Offline City. And uh, he said, well, we're, we're a little concerned about the customers. And the guy, the hotel guy said, don't worry about them. Your captain bought them all tickets on Amtrak to get to their destination in the east. And things like that inform the kind of tweets that you get. Uh, one of them I just love because it wasn't even our passenger. And one of our station managers came out, and she was she had a flat tire. She was trying to change it, and and he stopped to help her and, and changed the tire for her. And she said, but I want to tell you up front, I didn't even fly on Southwest Airlines. It was in the parking lot at the terminal. He, he said, ma'am, I'm here to help you change your tire. Hmm. I didn't ask you what carrier you flew on. That's extraordinary. And we use those people as exemplars. Uh, uh all over the company uh, with Spirit Awards, uh, Best Neighbor Awards, uh, and they act as role models for our other people. And it doesn't have to be inside Southwest Airlines. It can be something just in society mm -hmm. that has nothing directly to do with Southwest Airlines. Mm -hmm. The good deeds they do, even when they're not working for Southwest, I guess. You know, one of the interesting things that comes out of this conversation is you built one of the great businesses of all time. You all have built one of the great yeah, businesses all of, of all time. Did. Where do you, where do you distinguish between sort of analytical and emotional? <laughs> no, I'm serious. No, I understand how, because how, how I do think you, that's, how do you draw the line? Well, I think Richard. Everybody talks about uh, IQ and. EQ now, emotional quotient, and I've added one to it, CQ, curiosity quotient. Mm. And uh, the reason I mention that in the context of your question is that we want people to seek out things that are new and different and hopefully innovative and helpful uh, all the time and not be constrained by metrics in how they approach things. I'm not saying that metrics aren't useful don't understand me, but when it comes to human relations and emotions, metrics don't really tell you very much. And so uh, we emphasize leadership in terms of example, servant heart, golden rule, and one time to give you an illustration in response to your question, uh, we created the spirit of Southwest Airlines. In other words, it's a distinctive spirit. And uh, some folks came in and said, well, we want to we define it. And I said, no, no, no. There's no definition. Don't you realize that Wordsworth said it's murder to dissect? When you start dissecting it and saying, okay, now we'll look at subparagraph three, Roman numeral one, you've taken everything away from it. Leave it indefinite. 
What we want is the exudation of spirit. <laughs> and so you have to be careful, I think, about becoming too preoccupied with one at the expense of the other. It's like everything else, I think. It's a matter of balance and judgment. Do you feel that you've made that many of your decisions uh, with emotion, that there's an emotional component to these critical business decisions? Well, yes, there's, there's an emotional component insofar as motivation is concerned. But one thing you learn in law school is, is make sure you know what the facts are. Mm-hmm. And then you get emotional after you know all the facts uh, when somebody is trying to, you know, put you down. So emotion, well-founded emotion, I think is good. Although I will say when I was giving a talk at uh, Yale Business School, talking about Southwest Airlines and our approach to people. One of the uh, students did stand up afterwards and said, you sound like you're talking about a religion. <laughs> and I said, well, maybe a secular, secular, secular religion. <laughs> yeah, but I think you need emotion yeah. to infuse it, is oh, what I'm saying. But not emotion undistilled by consideration of facts, circumstances, knowledge. You know, emotion that's directed in a good cause after finding out what the true facts are and discerning what the true issue is. A lot of people fight over things that aren't really issues. You know, mm-hmm. they, they make them issues by fighting over them, but they're not really. And then that's when I said, after all that is done, I want Southwest Airlines to be able to strike with the alacrity of a puma. <laughs> and that's where the emotion comes in. <laughs> oh, that's beautiful. You, you meet and you have met so many uh, incredible people through the course of your life. What system do you have in place just personally when you meet someone who really impresses you to maintain a connection with that person? So the, the classic example would be even just a holiday card or some people play golf. When, when, when you meet someone who really piques your interest and you say, I want to I keep him in my orbit or her, well, yeah. how do you do it? Well, we, I never do it in the sense of trying to cozy up to someone uh, that I've met and have been very impressed by uh, because I figure they've got enough coziers. No doubt. <laughs> without adding one. But occasionally I will drop them a line about something I think will be of interest to them in what they're doing, not what I'm doing, Yep. what they're doing. And we also uh, keep in touch with people by sending out birthday cards to them, Christmas cards to them, Valentine's Day cards mm-hmm. uh, to them. And I'm talking about people who were in public life but have been out of it for 30 years. Hmm. See, we, we continue to communicate with people who have long ago retired from Southwest Airlines because we want them to know that we value them as people. And they're still part of the family. They're still part of the family, yeah. Thanks for listening to another great episode of Coffee with the Greats. If you haven't already, please do subscribe to this podcast so that the next episode will appear magically on your phone when it comes out. And check out Bixby Coffee to discover a better way to brew at home. 
Use code GREATS for 30% off your first order and free shipping at Bixby Coffee, B-I-X-B-Y Coffee.com. 